Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Simon Burton from Numero. I'm Matthew Liebman from Vista Group. And I'm Ryan Preventure from Movio. So Simon, your audio is a little weird. Um, you're not in the home office? No, I'm traveling at the moment. I'm sorry, doing my best. Okay, so um, you're not telling us, you're not telling Ryan, me and the listeners where you are. At the very least, can you tell us, are you in um, shorts and a singlet or you got an overcoat and beanie on? Shorts and a singlet. I'm in a very warm climate at the moment, Matthew. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. You can tell us if it's a warm climate where you need shots or not, and then we can work out what kind of shots we're talking about. <laughs> hey, we've got another big week this week. Um, I think in terms of news, though, you know, the biggest one that we've seen recently is uh, Apple following Amazon and committing to a billion dollars on theatrical releases. Uh, I think that adds up to, what, one Martin Scorsese film, uh, given his current uh, production costs. But the first one to get a theatrical release is Scorsese's Flowers of the Killer Moon. And today it was announced that Paramount will be releasing that on Apple's behalf, going limited on the 6th of October, wide on the 20th of October. I'm assuming if that goes live, then the Ridley Scott film and the Matt Vaughan film that Apple has will also get theatrical releases. And of course, this follows on the heels of Amazon that talked about 12 to 15 movies being released through cinemas, including Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's Air, which got a terrific response at uh, South by Southwest. So great to see at least two of the streamers coming through the theater doors. This is great news for the industry. And I think it's great news for directors like, like Martin Scorsese, who, who likes his films to be seen. He believes in the theater experience, so um, in the cinema experience. So I think this is, this is good for, for, for people like Ridley Scott, Martin Scorsese, and Matthew Vaughn. Absolutely. I think it's just good news all around. It's a shame it took us a couple of years to get here, but uh, for lots more films coming into theatres, which is terrific news. Yeah, and ultimately, why wouldn't you do it? These things have been greenlit. Uh, they're spending the money to make them. Might as well get the profile and credibility of a theatrical release and, and earn some bucks to offset the production costs. So that's the bigger picture. They're the two new A's, Apple and Amazon. But why don't we turn our attention to box office, Simon? Let's kick off with John Wick 4. Over to you. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it was all John Wick 4 this past weekend, uh, opening to a $73.5 million number domestically, uh, another $64 million internationally for a combined global opening of $137.5 million. Uh, it debuted at number one in every one of the 71 markets internationally where it opened. Uh, the best performing international market was the UK, grossing $6.7 million. Uh, and interestingly, IMAX and premium formats constituted 38% of that gross. Interestingly as well, this past weekend, looking at the Chinese domestic market continues to rebound um, with a total gross this past weekend of $73 million versus $19 million same weekend last year. The number one ranked film this week was Suzum, which grossed $49 million US dollars in the China market. Jumping back to John Wick, Chapter 4. Ryan, why don't we take a look at the audience? Well, the audience would be uh, kind of what you would expect for a film like this. The, the comparable films were the last John Wick, John Wick, Chapter 3, the most recent Ant-Man, Creed 3, Black Adam, The Batman, Doctor Strange from last year, this past weekend, Shazam, and then Black Adam. What we uh, did a comparison for was this compared to the last John Wick film, just to see, although we are 
somewhat out of the pandemic now, I wanted to see kind of how these compared to one another. And so the infrequent moviegoers were 37% for the newest John Wick compared to John Wick 3, which was 25%. And the occasional was 36 to 38%. So that was pretty close. It's the frequent ones that really was the the bigger difference that we saw, which was 24% for John Wick Chapter 4 compared to 35%. So you are still seeing the people who haven't going out as much coming back uh, coming back to see these kind of big tentpole films. And as I think I mentioned last week, you're going to see more of this as more and more of these kind of big, these big pictures come out and people just want to go see them. Uh, the age range and gender were pretty much exactly the same, the same with ethnicity. There wasn't, um, the audience that goes to see John Wick films have stayed the entire time. And, and that as the audience is getting older, they're sticking with them, which is a good thing. So this is a, and this is, and hopefully this is creating a little bit of a younger audience. So if, as the Lionsgate exec asked for John Wick 5, if they do have another one, then they certainly will want to, they'll want to try to get this audience back again. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast just uh, today. I didn't realize Keanu Reeves is 58. Uh, he certainly doesn't look it on screen. I saw John Wick 4 over the weekend and it was phenomenal. But, you know, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any official uh, talk of a sequel. Um, at one point, they were looking to do four and five back to back. That doesn't seem to be the case. And the director and Keanu have said they're going to take a bit of a pause. But as has to be the case with everything these days, there is now a universe. And of course, there's the spin-off ballerina starring Anna de, um, Armas. There's talk that Keanu might pop up there a little bit uh, because it sits between installments three and four. There's also a TV series around the Continental, which is meant to be a prequel. So there's certainly going to be John Wick out there. And, you know, if I'm a betting man um, and Simon is, uh, you'd have to think there is going to be a number five. When the original did 14.4 mil opening, the second one did 30.4 mil for the opening, the third did 56.8 mil, and this one has, has climbed all the way up to 73.5 mil. Uh, you'd be a foolish man to say this is the last we've seen of John Wick in his own uh, movies. So it'll be interesting to see how they, they execute on that. Uh, Simon, did you want to talk briefly about some of the holdovers and how they've traveled or otherwise uh, before we get to the interview? Yeah, we could talk about that. I guess it wasn't much of a holdover. Shazam Fury of the Gods dropping 68% uh, in the domestic market, down to $9.7 million, standing at a domestic team of 46.3. Um, international taking this past weekend, 12 million bucks, bringing the global total to a tick over $100 million. Um, Matt, I think you had a few opinions on, on what might have had a uh, played a part into that, that steep drop-off. Yeah, let me throw it out there and see if you guys agree or not. But I mean, I think if there's one lesson from, you know, an Aussie sitting in Auckland for, for Hollywood is don't slag off your own movie after the opening weekend. Um, look, this thing might have been a little more disappointing than uh, many people were hoping for it to open. But you ride out the momentum as best you can, whatever that momentum is. And seeing the lead blaming the marketing on Twitter back on the 21st of, of March, um, talking about cameos that weren't allowed to proceed. For the director to say, I'm definitely done with superheroes uh, for now on Twitter as well. It, it starts to put a bit of a stench on a film that, you know, if you look at the audience score, at least on Rotten Tomatoes, the public has liked. And at least until Mario Brothers, there's really no family film around except for the, the fumes of Puss in Boots. So there was a place for this. I just don't understand when cast and crew start to knock the legs out of their own film. 
uh, before it's taken as much money as it possibly can. Uh, am I being a bit harsh there or, or do you think there's some merit in those sorts of statements? You know, you're you're there to support your movie. It might be the greatest movie in the world. It might be the, the a lousy movie, but you know, your job is to promote it and to get people to try to go see it. And and I I'm I'm always a little surprised when this kind of stuff happens. As, as you said, especially right now, you know, if you want to talk about it when the movie's fully released and it's been out and that discuss your experience with the entire process, that's that's a little bit different. But we're in the second week of a film where it hasn't even played in some territories. Why would you? Why would you say anything at this point except to say that, hey, I'm really proud of this movie. Go see it. It's a great family. It's a great family film. So why don't we um, just go back to some of the success stories, though, Simon? Can you give us a quick um, whip around for Creed and Scream and, and the 65, which rounded out the top five? I certainly can, Matthew. Uh, Creed 3 in week four, domestically taking $8.4 million, only a drop of 46%, which brings the cum over 140 million in the, in the US market, which is a tremendous result. Internationally grossed another $5 million, bringing the global cum to $246 million. Uh, looking over at Scream 6, now in week three, grossed another $8.4 million in the domestic market, bringing that cum to just about $90 million, looking like it'll uh, surpass the $103 million mark and make it the highest grossing Scream film of all time in the domestic market. So a great result there for, for Scream 6. Uh, the global total on Scream 6 is also approaching $140 million. That's tremendous. And um, 65 sort of holding a little bit in terms of drop-off, albeit from a, a somewhat modest base? Yeah, it took $3.3 million domestically, bringing the cum to nearly $30 million and the global total to nearly $50 million. Excellent. So why don't we turn our attention to the interview? It's actually part two of my discussion from last week with Jackie Brenneman and Patrick Corcoran from NATO and the Cinema Foundation. Uh, if you haven't heard part one, uh, please go back and, and, and tune in on wherever you got this podcast. As you'll hear in that, uh, it was such a great chat. I was so excited to talk about them. I uh, talked to them, sorry, that we couldn't compress it into one session. So here's part two. Look, so far we've talked about the data you've collected and how that can be used to um, make decisions and, and action the industry. But NATO and the Foundation directly steered the performance of the industry through National Cinema Day last September 3. Uh, as you mentioned, Jackie, 8.1 million moviegoers showed up uh, and paid $3 tickets, which was about 30% of the 2022 average ticket price. And despite that, the gross, the aggregate revenue was 8% higher than the previous Saturday. And family films had the greatest uplift, possibly because the discount was amplified amongst more individuals than, than a single or a pair. What does that say to you about the role price has to play, um, either at everyday headline level or a more tactical promotional level? I'm taking into account your statements earlier about value prop, which I fully agree with. This pricing lever on the, on the countervailing side of what you get for what you pay certainly seemed to move bums on seats. Well, so I think we have a lot of things to think about with National Cinema Day, a lot of interesting data points that I think we need two years of National Cinema Day to fully understand, right? Because what we had in the marketplace on Cinema Day last year were titles that had been in theaters for weeks, if not months, right? And so, and almost every single one of those movies could be watched at home, you know, on SVOD even. So the audience that came out and spent $3 a head to bring their whole family to see, you know, a cause of fury or whatever, you know, whatever it was, super pets, right? Super pets did incredibly well. 
So you bring your family out to watch Super Pets. You could have streamed that at home for free, but it was incredibly valuable to them to bring all their kids out, watch that movie, buy the popcorn, and it became a really exciting day. Another thing that's really interesting is most of the people made a day of decision on Cinema Day. So they they just they saw all the press and they thought, oh yeah, I'll just go to the movies. And they just decided that day, went to a movie, found a showtime that worked, that, that wasn't sold out, and and went. And I think that that's also we've we've worked really hard in our industry, I think, to get people to buy their seats in advance and use the apps and, and all of that. And I think there is also still this an opportunity maybe that we're missing to remind people just to go to the movies. I think part of that is we need to have a more steady supply. Like Patrick said, if you, if you show up to the theaters, you're going to the movies and there's nothing you want to watch. That's going to kill that behavior instantly. Um, and so at $3, it doesn't matter. You'll take a chance on anything. Um, when it's a little more expensive, you, you don't really want to have take that risk. But I will say, you know, that these are really important questions. Is there room for differentiated pricing when a movie's been in the market for six weeks and it's on, and it's on streaming? Is there a way for those two releases, two coexist at the same time, if you change one of the levers, right? I, I don't know. And I'm certainly not in a position to talk about pricing um, but I am in a position to say these are questions that should probably be investigated by the right players um, because like I, like I said and like you're agreeing with, I mean, it's, it, the value proposition has to be there and we have to offer lots of different experiences for different audiences for different needs. And I think there's a lot more opportunity for that uh, in this new, this new normal that we're coming into, which is, I think, going to be much more individualized. The kinds of theaters I'm seeing around the country and around the world are incredibly unique, innovative, location, site specific. Um, and I think we're going to see that too with the kind of programming and the way that it's priced. I think there's going to be room for that in the future. Yeah. And look, as a cheap marketer back in the day, my view is always earn your full price and only then think about whether you need to pull the price lever. But even, you know, the examples you gave, Jackie, on top of that 80 for Brady and Paramount's initiative in the early weeks, again, shows that there is that that sort of supply demand aspect. And I think one of the great things about our industry is that symbiotic relationship that film rental creates and nobody's looking to give away the farm. They're looking to whether the poo unit comes down Ultimately, we want the pot to get bigger, however we get there. So I think it's um, what you shot a light on with National Cinema Day is, is a great first step in that conversation. The 80 for Brady experiment, I think, is such a is another really interesting thing to just to point out, which is, you know, for those who aren't aware, um, Paramount, who released 80 for Brady, which was originally a straight to streaming title, um, because of the audience, because it was an audience that was geared towards um, women were probably over 55 is probably their target demographic. And they tend to be more price sensitive and more matinee focused. The idea was charge matinee prices all day. And I don't know how many circuits did that, but it was offered a kind of to, to many different audiences. Um, and the attendance as a result was really high. Uh, but you, you know, I was actually at different studio meetings that week and depending on the studio, everyone was kind of thinking about it. It was an interesting thing. So people were just kind of talking about it, you know, not, not too specifically, but you know, some people thought, Oh, I think they're leaving money on the table. And others thought this is such a great idea. It's bringing in audiences. Um, and, and there are multiple ways to look at it. And, you know, two things can be true, 
Um, but I love that these questions are being asked and that studios are taking those risks and exhibitors are showing a willingness to also take that risk, right? To be partners. And I think, again, that's the new paradigm is like, let's partner together. Let's think about, don't, don't dump something on me. I'm not going to dump something on you. How about instead we work together and grow this business? And I think there's way more willingness to do that now than there ever has been. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. There's there. I mean, one of the really interesting things is what you mentioned, you know, the idea of get the full fare and don't, don't degrade your prices. That was the essence of the entire windowing issue, right? Well, most of that has gone away. Windowing is kind of certainly simultaneous release is settled. It's done. And the studios are settling around different windowing plans. I don't think they're set in stone yet. My um, guess is they'll probably widen. But what it's done is opened up some new avenues into looking at how consumers respond to that and and where they can make their money. So they're, they're concerned. They, we had the, the opposite concern with National Cinema Day where you look at, you know, Top Gun, which had been there, hugely popular all summer long, and was also debuting on home video that same weekend. And they worried that we were going to cannibalize their home video in a nice inversion of what we've been going through for all this time. And it didn't. It was number one on home video. It was number one that day. It was number one that weekend. So it ended up being the number one movie on Memorial Day and the one, number one movie on Labor Day, which is a huge achievement on that. And Paramount just did an amazing thing with that movie. But the idea of flexibility, the idea of being open to things, now that we've gotten past the, are we going to shrink the window or not? Well, it got shrunk. So let's now move on to, you, you wanted that flexibility from exhibition. Exhibition wants flexibility too. We all have to be flexible. We all have to be operating from the same basis of information. I mean, obviously, there'll be proprietary, proprietary information nobody's ever going to share. But our understanding of the industry and how consumers are behaving is stuff we need to share so that we can all operate in trust and good faith that we are seeing the same things and we're aiming at the same things. And that's that's the essence of this report and why we went to so many different sources for different things, why we shared it before we shared it publicly. We wanted to know that the studios, we didn't want to put something out there and have the studios go, you're idiots, and why should we talk to you? We wanted them to take part and understand it, right? So... I mean that, and that's the essence of the foundation. And then, and, and weirdly, it's the essence of if you think about it, something we've been doing for almost a decade and a half now, CinemaCon, where we bring everything together. It's there to show off exhibition. It's there to show off vendors. It's there to show off the movies and the movie stars. And there also is the element there with the press, where the press is getting everybody excited outside of that room. Right? The CinemaCon is a huge Twitter feature <laughs> for the week. It's there. All the all the news that's coming out of there. All of these things benefit everybody in the industry. And CinemaCon has always been apolitical. It's always been what is best. Come show us your best. We'll show you our best. You try to sell us your best. All that together. So putting that in the context of the foundation, which at its core its mission is to bring together different stakeholders. Uh, you know, it's, it's everything that we want together. We think filmmakers, you know, as they're about to be entering into these guild negotiations and everything else is going on there, they're crying for data. They want to understand the industry. They want to understand why the studios do what they do. They want to understand how they benefit from theatrical. So all of these things come together. All of them are, are better for the industry if we are transparent and sharing as much as we can. Right. Full information is the best way to foster competition, right? We have the best kind of competition if we have the best information. 
Great point. I'd like to ask just one more uh, question on, on National Cinema Day. Um, you know, when you have a, a generous discount like National Cinema Day, I guess it can be expected that people will flood through the doors. But have you seen whether it was a blip on September 3 or has there been some momentum you've been able to track post that day itself that suggests that it created momentum? I mean, we, so first of all, Cinema Day, again, this year, this past year was interesting because there weren't new movies coming up for a little while, actually, right after that. Nevertheless, we did a survey recently of people that had gone to National Cinema Day, and we asked if they went to the movies more often after going. And I, and I think it's important to know that a full quarter of the people that went out for National Cinema Day hadn't been to the theaters in years. Okay. We, we surveyed all of these people. And nearly 60% of them said they've gone to the movies more often because of National Cinema Day. And we saw this across the globe, too. We saw the, the kind of halo effect of National Cinema Day spilling over to increased box office weeks after. And again, with no, no real new movies in the marketplace, it just made people think about going to the movies. And so I think that's another real opportunity that we have and that the foundation presents like I mentioned before, there's about 40 million, you know, social media alone of followers of just the top 50 uh, exhibitors, d domestic exhibitors. If we're doing global programs where we're, we're using the social media reach of exhibition and the studios, can you imagine if we're marketing just movie going together, how much we can drive that part of the business? I mean, it's, it's incredible the opportunity we now have to do something really collaborative, really that lifts the industry and that can cost very little. I think one of the great things is that exposure to the product makes people want to consume the product more. I mean, there are people I know where, you know, exposure to them doesn't make me want to spend more time with them. Um, so the, the fact that, that you've got people in the door and they're hang on, no, this is, this is how I want to spend my leisure time is, is outstanding. I was just like, yeah, you, you're a parent, you take your kids. And a lot of those parents probably had never taken their kids to the movies because they, they were kids in the pandemic, right? So it's their first time taking their kids to a movie and they're like, oh my God, this is so much better than taking my kids to a restaurant or to a theme park. I'm drained after those experiences. This one, I'm relaxed. This was amazing. We, it's a win for all of us. And the same with people, you know, almost everyone went to Cinema Day with, with someone from a friend or a family member. People did not go alone. It, it's a, it was a communal thing. And I think people were like, oh, this is low friction, honestly, compared to everything else. And I came away feeling good. Look, one of my soapbox speeches is around the interpersonal experience given by frontline teams. So obviously we've talked a lot about the facilities and the amount of investment and focus on those. And the movies are coming back, there's more of them and they're bigger and more diverse. Um, but we've talked a lot about earning full price and I guess great service coupled with those other two elements takes the pressure off having to think about discounting, takes the pressure off having to reinvest in facilities a bit too if, if that interpersonal experience is there. And, Look, I know not everyone can be Cinemark's popcorn guy. Uh, it'd be great if they were. But how important do you see that interpersonal service experience? And do you think the industry is focusing on it in terms of measuring and monitoring and getting to the basics of cleanliness and courtesy the same way they are about the capital investment of, of the building itself? So I think I completely agree with you about customer service, right? One of my, I mean, I, I have a customer service background. It's a passion of mine personally. And I think for the movie theater experience, you know, we're constantly being told that we're, we're being compared to the home, which I 
that's a whole other soapbox that I could get on. And the customer service in the home, by the way, is terrible. Absolutely. I don't tip at all in my house. But you're not treated as a, you can't be treated as a guest in your home. And I think that that's a really important difference that maybe isn't said out loud, but is a thing people feel, right? They like feeling like a guest. And I do think, you know, as you know, it's, it's the case kind of across the country and probably across the globe, that it's challenging right now to find those frontline workers, right? That it's, it hasn't been necessarily as easy as we would have liked. But um, I also think leaders are trying to understand where the best place is to focus their employees, where are the most useful positions. And I think that there's going to be a reshuffling of what the most important jobs are. What is it that consumers now want, right? And I don't think, I think that it's going to take experimentation to understand. And again, it's going to be hyper-localized. Like if you've got, you know, if you've got a a theater that's kind of high end and swanky, you want staff that's able to, you know, be cool. There's going to be a brand. They're going to have to have a bartender. There's a lot of bartending. That, That might be the priority is bartending experience and being able to make a killer martini and uh, like a family, a location that's near a lot of families, you might want staff that feels really bubbly and kid friendly. And like that might be what really brings value to the particular guests. And so I think each location is going to figure out how to best use those customer service professionals to make their guests feel welcome and special and good. And I, and I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. Um, I will say that we've done we've done a we did a survey. We partnered with the Entertainment Industry Foundation, and they they had a, a sixty thousand person database. And of those people, you know, they're looking for jobs in the entertainment industry. And we we surveyed them and we asked, you know, do you are you have you ever worked in a movie theater, or are you would you ever have you ever thought about working in a movie theater? And of those people, when we asked them why, like, what's your primary reason you'd want to work in a movie theater? The number one reason, like over 90% said, because I love the movies. And that might feel like, duh, but you think about all these other customer service industries. People don't work at McDonald's because they love the fries necessarily, right? They don't go to Home Depot because they love lumber. They People in our industry are passionate about our industry. And that is an incredible asset. But when we when you ask employees you know, or prospective employees, what were the reasons that they would not work in a movie theater? It wasn't pay. It was it was more like upward mobility, right? And so, the the we have a messaging issue that the foundation certainly wants to work on, which is that working in a movie theater is not just the popping popcorn, right? Um, it is also all of these other jobs. A movie theater career can be anything. You know, you can if you love movies, and you, you know you could be a tech geek. There's all kinds of tech careers. If you love movies and numbers, you can do accounting. Like there's a job for you, you know, and it's. Where else can you be part of the movie industry in like a small town anywhere in the world? You get to be part of Hollywood. And we have to tell that story a little bit better as a as an industry. Lots of our lots of movie theater owners are great at this. So I'm not gonna say that they're not. There's a lot of theaters that are having no trouble recruiting uh because they're so good at this piece of this. But at the foundation, that's certainly something we want to work on because I I that passion is such an asset that other industries don't even get to have. Yeah, and all the benefits you talk to, I think one of the other ones is that, you know, you look at the average age of cinema managers, the opportunity to run a multi-million dollar revenue business of its size um, doesn't come along for people who are into leisure, hospitality, retail, uh, the way it does with cinemas. You get a lot of responsibility in a multifaceted business 
uh, much, much earlier in this industry. And cool coworkers, because they're all interested in the same thing you are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a role for technology then to take those transactional and frictional elements away from the cinema staff, stop making them human keyboard pushes, uh, automate that so that they can be unshackled and bring their personality uh, to their, their workplace uh, and, and infect the, the other cinema goers with, uh, with that sort of passion and enthusiasm. And, you know, one of the, one of the other things about uh, the pandemic, which uh, you've seen it across all industries, where people have reassessed why they want to work. Right. For some, it's more money and, the, and then there's a demand. So we go to that. But for a lot of people, they want to do something they care about or at the very least enjoy and make and making the investment in making that job meaningful or enjoyable. I mean, you, you made the point about capital investment. Well, so are employees. Right. Sometimes they leave quick and you that money's gone. But the value you get from building up a dedicated staff, a staff that's going to grow, it's going to enhance your company you know at at the at the most important point of contact which is the customer uh it's just hugely valuable and and that that kind of research into what drives people's interest in in working in movie theaters that's also something that can be emphasized in retaining them and building up their careers and they need to stay with you so it's it's again there's this thing the work on our worst day we work for people who give people a good time every day We've taken up a lot of your time, but I will say that I remember when the foundation was launched at CinemaCon just under a year ago, and to think about what you've all delivered in such time, from the research and the information and the decision making that will inform to Cinema Day itself, I can't imagine uh, any more more outcome productivity and benefit from the industry from what you've all done. So, look, congratulations on that. Uh, on top of that, you know, Patrick, you've alluded a couple of times how much more's in the report. We've had a long conversation and only scratched the surface, so I can only encourage everyone, download a version, uh, get into the details of what we've talked about, but see all the other information we didn't get time to today. Uh, it's, it's well worth everyone's time to look at it. It's also available on the Cinema Foundation page. It is available at cinemafoundation.org, and it is my absolute imperative to remind anyone who cares about this work that we can't do it for free, and we can't do it alone. So donate money. Donate time, share ideas and insights. Uh, we are, the foundation is here for you. If you are listening to this, it's because you care about this business. So please participate however you can. And your donations are tax deductible if you are a U.S. citizen. I was going to say Jackie's was a great concluding message, but Patrick's, yours might be even better for our, our U.S. listeners. <laughs> Thank you both for your time. I look forward to seeing you at CinemaCon in a few weeks. Looking forward to next week, we've got Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves opening. Really keen to see how this does at, at the box office. Um, lots of really positive word of mouth around this title. Uh, I see that the, the Vegas line has it opening at, uh, or the over-under at $27.5 million. Um, I'd be going the overs on that. To be honest, seems like it's going to smash that result and go well over, over that 27 and a half million dollars domestically uh, so we'll have the wrap up of that and it's international release as well next week with everything i've read i think dungeons and dragons is going to do well over 27.5 it's going to be a great weekend for everyone at the movie theaters 
Yeah, I'd have to put in um, my vote for an over as well. Sitting at 90% Rotten Tomatoes and 88 uh, reviews. I've heard the public's into it as well. So if we can come back, it'll um, be all of us uh, smiling next week or all of us with a frown uh, based on taking the same over and under. But thanks, gents, for joining us, especially you, Simon, in your Where in the World is Carmen San Diego location. Uh, and we'll speak to everyone again next week behind the screens. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world-leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow Movio, Numero, and Vista Group on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced by Grace Furness and edited by Patrick Hanna.